You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, may the God of hope, not happiness, not joy, not momentary glee, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound or overflow with hope. Hope is such a pivotal part of the gospel story and the Christian experience and something that I am excited to talk about this morning. Good morning, church. How are we doing? It is good to be back with you here for our second week of our Advent series that we've titled The Light of the World, where we uh, have been and will continue to consider how the light of Jesus coming into this very dark world has fundamentally changed everything. We believe that, that the moment that Jesus comes into the world uh, as an infant born in a manger, that this moment radically alters the rest of uh, history, all of history, in how we experience the world around us as humans. One of the reasons that I love Advent season, among many reasons, is the unapologetic emphasis of hope. Hope is an essential part of our faith. It's It's such a a fundamental part to our day-to-day lives as Christ followers, and yet it is exceedingly easy to lose sight of just how essential it really is. When we read a passage like Romans 15, uh, I love it because it reminds us that no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how much loss you suffer, that as a Christian, there is always hope in the God of hope because he is the God of hope. And he will, as, as we pray and as we follow him, he will fill us with joy and peace and we will abound in hope by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I love that. And, and I mentioned specifically the, the element of loss or heartache or despair because I want to remind you something that, a simple truth, but something that is, again, important for you to connect with. And that is this, that hope only exists in a world where we don't get what we want. Hope only exists in a world where you don't have what you want. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, who hopes for what they already have? (laughs) You don't hope for things that you possess. You hope for things that you do not possess, but that you long for, right? So hope then is only valuable. It only matters. It is only necessary when we don't have what we desire. We hope for it. And the story of Advent in so many ways is all about hoping for that which we do not possess. Advent, in part, is a story of a weary world longing for God's salvation to come. It's a a story of a people of God desperately waiting through heartache and agony, through sin and the consequences of that sin, through despair and suffering, for God to bring them some kind of relief 
They hope for it. We talked last week about how uh, the light of Christ is so desperately needed in this very dark world that we live in. And so Advent then is, again, in part a story of this longing or waiting for, hopeful expectation for light to come into the darkness. And so part of what I want you to connect with, not only this morning, but over the next four remaining weeks of this series, is that feeling of longing that Israel must have had that sense of desperation that they must have felt as they waited for God's Messiah patiently. And really, the idea of waiting uh, connects with the biblical definition of hope. The, t- the two main words, at least in the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, that we translate as hope, uh, they, they convey the idea that of something much deeper than how we use hope today. We have a very cheapened view of hope, I think, in, in the way that we talk about it, right? Like, I hope I get this present for Christmas or you know, I hope that the Mexican pizza comes back to Taco Bell the next time I'm there, right? Anyone want to just confess that now? I'm with you. Uh, it's a safe place to do that. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of, of, of a much deeper kind of hope in the Bible, though. It, it's much deeper than the way that we understand it. Uh, the Hebrew word conveys the idea of hope under tension, this, this extreme tension. You can imagine a rope that's being stretched out tighter and tighter, and there's this great amount of, of tension across the rope, and as it is pulled tighter and tighter, it gets tenser and tenser, and finally it pops, and it snaps, and that tension is released. That is the sort of understanding of biblical hope coming into fruition in the Bible. The world waited in tension, and as that rope got tighter and tighter, things got worse and worse, and at the birth of Christ, that rope snapped, and hope is born. Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, then becomes our source of this hope. So this morning, I want to talk about three distinct ways in which we can hope in Christ, the Son of Man. Uh, Kelsey mentioned before that special song uh, the the emphasis of Son of God, Son of Man. And and whenever we read the Gospels, we come to figure out pretty quickly that Jesus has a fair amount of titles that he applies to himself as he's teaching, whether it be in public or to his disciples or uh, in in various different environments. He refers to himself with several different names or titles. So he'll be called the Son of God or the Son of David or the Bridegroom or the Good Shepherd or Lord or Teacher or Rabbi. There's, There's several different titles that he is connected to. But His favorite title by far, if you just count the number of times, the sheer number of times he refers to himself as as each of these different names, the one that wins out over and above the rest by a long shot is the title Son of Man. He uses this term more than than any other title in any of the Gospels. And a cursory reading of the Gospels may lead you to think that the Son of Man is sort of the opposite title of the Son of God right? That, in other words, the Son of God would refer to Jesus' deity, the fact that he is a divine person. And the Son of Man, then, is going to refer to Jesus' humanity, the fact that he is born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary, a a human woman. And, and, And this makes sense. I mean, I understand this connection that a lot of people fall into because we believe, historically, our faith is rooted in the conviction that Jesus is both 100% human and 100% God, that he has a 100% human nature and 100% divine nature as well. And so it's tempting then, when we read the Gospels, to connect with this Son of Man title and go, well, this is referring to his humanness. And what I want you to 
get this morning is actually the Son of Man is a second divine title that is very deeply rooted and anchored in the Old Testament. So let's talk this morning about hope in the Son of Man. I've titled the message Hope in the Son of Man. And as we're going to see this morning, there are several places in the gospel where Jesus refers to himself very specifically as the Son of Man, and in these passages, we are given an element of hope for very specific things that we require in this life that we live. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 1, and I'm going to warn you up front, if you have a physical Bible, uh, be prepared to do a lot of turning back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages in the Old Testament this morning that connect to some very puzzling things that Jesus says that seem very confusing until you understand why he's saying them, because they're connected to uh, these passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to do our best to put the, mo- the majority of them, at least the references, uh, up on the screen. But if you're skeptical like me, and you're like, no, I want to see it in print, I want to know that this guy isn't making it up, then uh, just be ready to do a lot of turning from page to page. John chapter 1. The first thing we find is the hope for revelation. The hope for revelation. Now, before you get too excited, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, all right? Uh, or more appropriately, the revelation of Jesus to John. And just as a side note, because it is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, although I am very bearing in patience and grace, all right? So no judgment. But um, uh, it is one singular revelation, right? Not the book of revelations. Uh, It was just one revelation. Very important side note. When I say that the Son of Man gives us hope for revelation, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, but more of just the general uh, concept, uh, revelation. The Greek word in the, the New Testament is apocalypsis. It's a word that means a disclosure or a revealing, to reveal something that was previously unknown. So in the Christian context, this is the act of God disclosing himself or revealing himself in a way that was previously not understood prior to that moment. And we see that happening in John chapter 1. We read some of this last week, but I'm going to read it again because it sets up the point quite nicely. We're going to work our way all the way to the end of this chapter, but we got to have some context before we get there. John 1, starting in verse 6, it says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now admittedly, pause there for a moment, this is a bit confusing, Because we have two Johns now that we're dealing with, right? This is John's gospel written by the Apostle John, and he is in verse 6 talking about John the Baptist, and those are two separate Johns. They're not the same guy. So John the Apostle is talking about John the Baptist. He says he's sent by God. Verse 7 and 8, it says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, talking about Jesus. So he, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about Jesus, the light. That's verses 7 and 8. And so John the Baptist came, in other words, to testify, to give credibility to, to announce the forecoming of this Messiah. And then verse 9, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. One of the reasons that Jesus is likened to light coming into the world is because of this idea of revelation, because light reveals, it discloses things to us that were at one time hidden in darkness. We can see things, things become apparent to us, where when they were once in darkness, they are now in light. 
Now, what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage, what we're getting at, is that, is that he is not only the one who reveals who God is, but he is actually the connecting point between God and man. He is where God meets humanity. He is the gateway, if you want to think of it that way, into a relationship with or uh, a, a knowledge of who God is. If you keep reading John 1, it's pretty long, like I said, 51 verses, but you get to a point in the story where Jesus begins to call his first disciples to come and follow him. Verses 35 through 42, Andrew and Simon Peter are called to follow Jesus, and they begin to uh, follow him. Verse 43, he calls a man named Philip to follow him. And then in verse 45, this is where the story picks up. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip is saying to Nathanael, Nathanael, we did it. We found him. It's been a thousand years, more than a thousand years, we have been waiting under tension in the dark, and the Messiah that we've all been looking for, we found him. He's here. Come and check him out, right? And Nathaniel is reasonably skeptical. I like him because he's skeptical like I am. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Nazareth is this like small backwoods country town. I mean, it, to modernize this a little bit, it would be like, hey, Nathaniel, the Messiah is here. Yeah, he's that guy that was born in Ennis. You know, like, like Alvarado over there. I mean, that's not what you're expecting. The Messiah, nothing wrong with those places, by the way. If you live there or from there, praise be. I, I, they're fine places. But they're, but they're not where you would expect the Messiah of the world to come from. Right, you're thinking DFW, Metropolitan, San Antonio, certainly not Austin, nothing good comes out of Austin. But you are thinking big city, right? And so Jesus meets Nathanael, verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, behold, a little strange, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. This is a very puzzling thing to say. What in the world does Jesus mean? An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He's not paying him a compliment necessarily. When you begin to think about the Old Testament, who's the one Israelite above all the rest that is connected to deceitfulness? It's Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is the one connected to deceitfulness. Genesis chapter 27, if you remember, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 27, he uh, notoriously deceives his aging, now blind father Isaac into thinking that he is his slightly older brother, Esau. Jacob and Esau are born as twins. Esau comes first. Jacob is like five seconds later, right? And he deceives Isaac into thinking that he is Esau so that he can receive Esau's birthright because the firstborn had a better birthright and his covenant promise. So he steals it from him and it creates a lot of enmity between him and his brother and it's this whole kind of element in Jacob's narrative. So he is a deceitful individual. So Jesus, when he says this, his words are loaded and this is not uncommon. Jesus does this a lot where he's saying things that have like surface level value but he's also pointing you to something else and if you have the understanding of the Old Testament, you can kind of pick up on it and that's what's going on here. He wants us to be thinking a little bit about Jacob and there's a reason for that. 
Nathanael responds to him. He says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, there are a couple of things going on here in this response. It says a couple of things about uh, Jesus and Nathanael. Number one, it suggests that Jesus had his eyes set on Nathanael long before Philip came to talk to him, right? Before Philip ever came to Nathanael to call him to come and see the Messiah, the Messiah had his gaze fixed upon Nathanael. But secondly, this is again another connection to an Old Testament passage, and you miss it if you don't understand the minor prophets. Jesus is connecting himself to God here. In Hosea chapter 9, God talks about how he first found Israel, and he says he calls them to himself. Hosea 9 verse 10, it says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, and like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Behold, an Israelite under a fig tree. Jesus is connecting himself to God, calling Israel to himself. Jesus is about to call an Israelite to himself as well. Whatever Jesus intended to be communicated here, it worked. Because verse 49, Nathanael gives his response. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he confesses Jesus. He believes this is the Messiah. I can't believe it. Never thought he'd come out of Alvarado, Texas, but here he is, right? A a Nazarite who is the Messiah. And that gets us to our first text of the morning, verse 50 and 51, where we find hope for revelation in the Son of Man. Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he said to him, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now again, it seems like a confusing thing to say. What in the world does Jesus mean? Until you connect it to Jacob and Jacob's story. Remember how he references Jacob. This is where this whole thing comes in. If you keep reading, just after Genesis 27, you get to Genesis 28, and Jacob has this moment, he has a dream where God communicates to him all of the promises, he reaffirms all the promises to him that he made to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac, and the means by which he reveals these things to him, the means by which he discloses himself to him is through what seems almost like a ladder. Genesis 28, 11, and 12. It says, Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. By the way, what a terrible way to sleep. Can we just agree to that? A stone. I can't... Anyways, verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. Aha, we have a connection here, and I love verse 13, it goes on, it says, behold, Yahweh stood above the ladder. So the image here, get this, the the image here is there is a ladder that is moving all the way up into the heavens, and at the top of the ladder, God himself is looking down upon creation. And there are angels coming from heaven down to earth and coming from earth back up into heaven. There's this whole divine commerce that's taking place upon this ladder. It's this amazing vision that God gives to Jacob. And the ladder itself is the means by which God chooses to communicate these things to him. 
And Jesus here is referencing that in John chapter 1, and he just told Nathan, the Son of Man is the ladder. The Son of Man is the gateway. The Son of Man is the means by which God the Father is going to make himself known to all of you. He's going to reveal himself. He's going to disclose himself through the Son of Man, Jesus. In other words, the Son of Man is the hope for revelation to know God. Not just to know about God, not just to read about God in the Bible, but to actually know him on a personal and intimate level, which is, by the way, the definition, the very definition of eternal life. We think of the term eternal life as something that means like, you know, just being in heaven for forever. And maybe there are some elements of that that is certainly true. But Jesus, in John chapter 17, verse 3, he tells us plainly what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To have eternal life is simply to know God, to know him intimately. And so Jesus then is the revelation of God. It's why, he, it's why he later on said to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's why Paul says in Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you've seen Jesus work in your life, you've seen God work in your life. So the advent of Jesus then is in part the advent of hope that we might know God the Father and God the Son and be carried about in our lives on a day-to-day basis through the power of God the Holy Spirit. The Son of Man discloses who the Father is. He reveals him to us. We can say, I know God only because Jesus came, only because of the advent of Christ. He's the hope for revelation Secondly, the Son of Man is the hope for redemption. I'm going to have you skip past John chapter 2. It's a great chapter. Read it in your off time. But let's look at John chapter 3. Most of us are familiar with this chapter, perhaps because the most well-known verse in all of the Bible is in this chapter, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, and so on and so forth. But before that great verse, there is a, a profound exchange that takes place between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is a skilled teacher of the law. Uh, He is a member of what is called the Sanhedrin, which is sort of a uh, Jewish version of the Supreme Court. In order to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be extremely well-versed in Old Testament law. Uh, In fact, Jesus even refers to Nicodemus in this conversation as a teacher of Israel. So he had a high position of authority, and he was a skilled teacher in the Old Testament. So Jesus is thinking, I can throw a lot of Old Testament at him in my, in my talk with him, and he's bound to get it because he knows the Old Testament super well. And it's, of course, a major fail. Nicodemus is confused the entire time. But to summarize the story, Nicodemus comes to him at night, which suggests he didn't want to be seen by others. He was sort of embarrassed by the conversation. And he asks Jesus, he says, how, do, how, do I, how does one enter into the kingdom of heaven? How do I go to heaven? Right? I mean, this is a question we've all asked. Every, every person in the world, I think, at some point asks this question, what's beyond this? How do I get there? And Jesus says a lot of things. Again, we don't have time to unpack it all. But in short, he says, you have to be born again. You must be born again. And that even confuses Nicodemus. They talk through that a little bit. But then, in, again, in Jesus' fashion, makes this very puzzling statement in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. So we have this ascending, descending thing going on again. And again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's the second time we find this title in John's Gospel. So catch the significance here of what he just said. The Son of Man is not only the ladder upon which angels will ascend and descend from heaven to earth and to earth, uh, or from earth back to heaven, but the Son of Man himself has descended and will ascend again at some point. He has the authority, in other words, to go into heavenly places. He has the authority to leave heaven and come down to earth. And then we get to verses 14 and 15. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now again, it's a strange thing to say, but he's talking about the purchase of redemption for those who would look upon him and believe. In order to get the significance of this, we really have to go to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21 covers a portion of time uh, while Israel is wandering around in the wilderness. They've just gotten out of Egypt. Remember the Prince of Egypt, the happy ending? It's not a happy ending. They end up in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they're wandering around. And verse 4, this is near the very beginning of this time. It says, the people of God set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. I just want to, for a moment, suggest to you that this verse also perfectly describes most families' Christmas experience at some point in Advent season. Group of people on the road have to go the long way because the normal way is blocked, very impatient because of it. Every family experiences this when they're shopping on Saturday morning, right? This is just maddening to all get out. Verse 5, it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Remember the glory days in Egypt when we were prisoners and slaves and we were being beaten to death and not fed? Why did you take us away from there only to come here to die in the wilderness? They say, for there's no food and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Talking about manna, the food that God supernaturally gave them every day of their life so they wouldn't die of starvation. We hate it. It's terrible. They begin to complain. They begin slandering God. They begin slandering Moses, God's prophet, which is a huge no-no. And then we get to verse 6 of Numbers 21. God responds to them. This is his response. It says, Then Yahweh, the Lord, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're not going to end there. What is happening in this verse? This is very harsh. This is very terrible. It is very terrible. It is a, uh, a particularly harsh judgment coming down on the people because of the nature of their transgression. They are sort of slapping God in the face. God has redeemed them out of the clutches of Pharaoh, the evil Pharaoh. He's supernaturally brought them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom. He took care of the Egyptian army with the Red Sea. He's been providing them food every day. He's promised them land. If they would just go there and stop complaining, they would get it. It would be a great place to live. And they're just complaining the whole time, just murmuring the whole time against God. This sucks. This isn't good. The food's crappy. I don't want to be here. It's hot. I'm tired. This gets their attention. And they repent. And it says that they plead with Moses 
to pray on our behalf and ask God to stop it, right? And this is what God tells Moses to do. This is in verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, who sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it upon a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now I want you to get the imagery here because it's really kind of shocking when you think about what's being described here. The people are being terrorized by serpents. They're all over the place, right? They're all over the place, and they're frantic. Their stress level is at an all-time high. Code red, level 10 terror in the camp. And, and, you know, serpents, I mean, they're crazy. Just as a side note, the way they move, they're unpredictable. There was a study, I can't recall uh, who did it, but it was a a particular research uh, university that, that did this brain study where they hooked up these little probes on people's heads and had them look at, at serpents, snakes. And one of them was an animatronic snake that was so lifelike and real, the people in the test didn't know. They, did, they weren't aware that it, they thought it was a real snake. But what the test proved was that when they looked at the animatronic snake, though they believed it was real, their brain said otherwise. Their brain reacted differently than to when they were looking at actual, real, live serpents. And they hypothesized that the way that snakes move is so unpredictable to the human brain that even when we are are not necessarily threatened by them, even when they're like behind glass or, you know, away from us as they should be, that our brains are triggered into the sort of fear or terror because we can't predict what they're doing. Our brains can't really make sense of it. So this is a high stress moment, that's my point. There are serpents everywhere, they're venomous, they're biting people, many of them have already been bitten, some of them have already died, their bodies are just sort of laying about all over the camp, you're having to step over the body, right, to get to where you're going. It's just this awful scene, and others had been bitten, but they were still alive, but they could feel the effects of the venom now coursing through their veins, they, they, their heartbeat began to slow down a little bit, they, they, they began to struggle to breathe as easily, they... Their muscles began to cramp up and tense up, and they were sweating, and they were clammy, and they, they, would, they would begin to desperately look for Moses. They knew, I'm going to die soon if I don't get to Moses. I got to see the bronze serpent. I got to get there. And so they're, they're trying with everything they can to get through the pandemonium and the crowds and to get to a point where they can get up maybe on an elevated spot somewhere so they can look across the camp, and they can see this bronze serpent being held up on a pole, and then the moment their eyes fix themselves upon the bronze serpent... They're healed. The venom dissipates. And they live. There's life. They're not going to die any longer. Jesus is saying in chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Get the connection that he's making here. He's saying in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent, I, the Son of Man, am going to have to be lifted up. How? On a cross, on a cross, that whoever would look upon the Son of Man would not die, but would live, and not just now, but eternally. That the venom, not from a serpent, but from the serpent, the venom of sin that leads to eternal death, would be cleansed from us, and that we would have redemption in Him. The Son of Man is our hope for redemption. You don't have to wonder whether God will forgive you. You don't have to wonder whether like, man, I'm coming into church again and I did a lot of bad things. Hope God can cover it this time, right? 
He's our hope for redemption. He's our hope for forgiveness. We can trust it. He's trustworthy. You know, in my experience in, in, in doing ministry and being a part of, of a congregation is that oftentimes a congregation is sort of divided into two categories. And, and I mean this, when I talk about this, I'm talking about believers, right? Non-believers sort of fall into different categories as well. But, but in the ch- church members who believe the Lord, who believe the gospel, I, I typically see two categories that people fall into one or the other. The first is the group of people who are so out of touch with their sin that you need Advent, you need the Advent season to slow down a little bit and think about all the things that you often suppress. You need to come back to to reality. You need to come to grips with the fact that you've done some things that need confessing and forgiving, right? because they quench the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about how sin is a separator. It separates us from the presence of God. It separates us from one another. It's relational killers, right? They, they separate us from other people. We feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel ashamed, and just a whole, a whole spectrum of, of feelings that come with this. And so Advent is good for you to slow down a little bit and come back to reality and come to grips with the fact that, yeah, I, I have maybe been living in a way or doing things that are not honoring of God that I need to repent of, that I need to be restored and redeemed from. Not that you've like, lost your salvation or anything like that at all. I don't, we don't believe that. But, but there, there are effects. There are real-time effects in your life when you're living in sin that is unconfessed. But then there's this other category of people that you're not only aware of your sin, but you're like debilitated by it. You're crushed by it. You are, 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 it's like, it's, it, it's a handicap to you. You cannot not think about it. There's so much shame. There's so much uh, nervous anxiety over the things that you do or have done, the things that you've said, the ways in which you've acted, and you feel this tremendous amount of guilt, and you need Advent to be reminded that even your worst sin, the things that you, that you are just desperately ashamed of, the things that you would never want to tell another living soul about, that that sin has been paid for by the Son of Man on the cross, that it's done, that there's no amount of serving or giving or memorizing scripture or reading the Bible or coming to church or going to class or doing this or doing that that pays for that, but that simply by believing in the Son of Man who's been lifted up in the same way as the serpent was lifted up by Moses on a pole, that whoever would believe in him by faith would be redeemed, that anyone would, who, who would look upon him with belief would find redemption. You have that promise in scripture. You have that promise in scripture. I don't think that we say enough in, in our denominational circle the phrase, you are forgiven. I can say that to you, not because I have the authority to forgive your sin, I don't. But I can say it because I know the gospel and the gospel says it. You are forgiven of your sin if you believe in Jesus. You're forgiven of your sin if you believe in Jesus. You have to believe that. You have to let that find its way into your heart and let go of the shame and the guilt that you so desperately want to hang on to. You see, we find hope in the Son of Man in several ways. He's our hope for revelation. He's our hope that we would know God on a personal and intimate level. He's our hope for redemption, that we have been forgiven by God for those of us who have believed in him by faith. And third, we'll end here. He is hope for restoration. 
restoration. Can we agree? I think that um, regardless of where you fall in your opinion about um, religion or politics or social issues, can we all agree that the world is a really crappy place to live in? <laughs> I think that resonates with like every human heart. I have yet to meet someone that's like, I love it here. There are no problems. Uh, everything is great, right? Uh, that person is nearing meltdown status. I guarantee just watch them, pray for them, right? Because it's going to be bad. Yeah, the world is a horrible place. Life is hard. It, at least life is not the way it should be. I mean, I think if, if anything, we can, we can agree to that. And so one of the hopes of Advent is that life isn't always going to be this way. We live in the tension of a fallen world right now, but we won't always. There's an end to all of this at some point. Jesus, the Son of Man, will come at some point in the future to restore that which belongs to himself. In Matthew chapter 24, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this. Uh, Jesus is asked by his disciples, this is in verse 3, so if you've been in John 3, you're going to want to hang a left back to Matthew's gospel, chapter 24. Verse 3, he's asked by his disciples... Tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, they're asking him, when are you going to come back, Jesus, and how are we going to know it's for real? What do we look for? What are the signs? What, what is there out there that will tell us for sure this is the end? Things are getting really bad. How do we know? Because, I mean, if you've been alive for any amount of time, you've probably heard people uh, in the church and on TV, especially they're the most notorious for it, that like, well, we're, we're certainly coming to the, the final days, the last days. Folks, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. You know, well, it's getting very bad out there. The world has never been more divided. I don't know. World War II, we were pretty divided. Right? I mean, these are moments in history where... So how do we know? And Jesus gives this very lengthy answer to this question. And again, it's, it's more than we have time for this morning, but one thing that I want to point out to you that stands out when you're reading Matthew 24, he mentions another Old Testament character, and there's a reason for this. He mentions Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Again, like the Jacob illusion, Jesus is doing this to get you thinking about Daniel, because he's about to say something that if you're thinking about Daniel, you're going to go, oh, I know what he's talking about right now, because I've read Daniel. If you go all the way down to verse 30, this is what Jesus says. He describes his epic return. And this is what he says. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. There's that title again, Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, at first, this just seems like an epic scene. Jesus coming on the clouds, it's pretty powerful, right? But in order to get the full force of it, we have to look at Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel sees and describes a moment in time where God will judge the living and the dead, all people. Verses 9 and 10 of Daniel 7, and Daniel says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels we're burning fire. By the way, coolest throne ever described. <laughs> Fiery wheels on a throne? 
Uh, anyways, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So it has flamethrowers on it as well. Coolest throne ever made. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is describing this like incredibly epic moment where God opens the books and begins to judge all people. This is presumably the same scene that John the Apostle describes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 15, he goes on and says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Sometimes I think we forget about that passage. Just going to let that hang out there. Daniel describes something that Revelation is also describing. But so far in Daniel's account, there's only one character. The Ancient of Days is what he's called. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack why this is what I am going to say it is, but just take my word for it or don't, and you can look it up, and you'll come to the same conclusion. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. Okay? God the Father. But then we get a second character introduced in Daniel's account. This is in verses 13 and 14. He says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees another person come onto the scene, one like a son of man. He's coming with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. Anyone want to guess who this figure is? I mean, I am underhanded throwing you a softball. Better hit this out of the park, right? Jesus, right, Jesus. Jesus comes to God the Father, and he is presented by the Father with a kingdom, and he is given dominion and glory, and all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then look, all the tribes of the earth, all the peoples and languages, they will mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Because they know what's about to happen because they've read Daniel 7. The books are about to be open. Judgment is about to take place. And they will see, he says, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's why John the Apostle says in Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, Jesus, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Why? Because they've read Daniel 7 and they know what's going on. Even so, John says, amen. Now, John says a lot more, by the way, in Revelation about this second coming or second advent of Christ. And we're not going to jump into it this week because we're going to cover it on the last week of the series on New Year's morning. We're going to talk about the second advent that we can look forward to. But listen, the Son of Man comes for one reason and one reason only, and that is to restore that which belongs to him to make new that which he rightly deserves, that which has been given to him. Let me give you a quick snapshot of what happens here as the Son of Man returns. This is how we'll, we'll wrap this up. The first thing he does is he destroys Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
We can feel not bad about that because it's Satan who it's being done to, right? Praise God. Number two, he destroys death itself. Revelation 20, verse 14. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It's not that Jesus just like hits the off button on death. He takes death and destroys it. He undoes it. It's obliterated. It's annihilated. Number three, he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Praise God for that. The ocean is terrifying. (laughs) Number four, he creates a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse two. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Number five, he intends to be with us for eternity. Revelation 21, verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And number six, the best part, he will bring comfort to our pain. Revelation 21, verse 4, the verse perhaps filled with more hope than any other verse in both the Old and the New Testament. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It isn't that he just brings comfort to your pain. It's that he radically undoes the things that hurt you. He radically undoes these moments of loss in your life. It's like watching, and some of you younger people will struggle with this because you weren't around for VHS, but it's like watching a really horrible scene in a movie that you just wish wouldn't have happened and just pressing the rewind button and seeing it all get undone back to how it was before it happened. I guess it's like, you know, hitting the the back button on YouTube or whatever, however you want to. He doesn't just stop death and pain and kind of wipe your tears away and pat you on the head and send you off. He works in such a way where in a million years from now, when you are in God's presence, basking in his glory, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, losing a loved one. I don't even remember what that was like. Oh, yeah, pain. Trauma. Yeah, you know, I, I can't I remember the word, but I don't, I don't remember at all what that felt like. <laughs> totally gone. Totally undone. And I love how this ends, the, the verse right after that. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You could translate that this way. Behold, I am bringing all things unto restoration. I am restoring back the way things ought to be, the way I intended them to be. I am restoring things back to how they were supposed to be before Genesis chapter 3, before sickness, before suffering, before loss, before Satan deceived the world, before death. I am making all of it go away, and I am restoring it back to how it was supposed to be. We can have hope in the Son of Man. Not that we just might know about God. Not that we just might know some cool theology. But that we might know him personally, intimately. 
through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's the ladder, he's the gateway upon which God's self is revealed to us. We can hope in him that while we live in this fallen world with fallen bodies that are broken and while we do things we don't want to do and we don't do the things we want to do, that we might have salvation anyways, that we might have forgiveness for those things that we've done, that we might find redemption in the Son of Man who was lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that whoever would look upon him and believe would have eternal life. We can hope in him that one day the Son of Man will return to us and he will restore all things back into good order, that he will undo all of the evil and horrible things that happen in this world, that he will come back on the clouds of heaven, that he will open the books, that everyone will see him as he returns and he will judge the earth, the living and the dead, and that he will destroy Satan and death and bring restoration to all things. Behold, he is making all things new. Life may really seem hopeless right now for some of you, and I I know that to be true because I know many of you. I've sat and talked with many of you. It feels hopeless right now, and I get that. Life is exceedingly hard. In fact, I think if we're just being honest, it's it's more hard than it is good. Like, we're lucky for the, we're we're blessed in those moments of goodness, But, but overwhelmingly, it's just rather difficult. But Advent season is a reminder to us that hope, that your hope is not futile as long as it's hope in the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hope, not empty, wishful thinking, but a hope that's founded upon your character and many of your promises which have already come to fruition. How we love you and we long to be with you. We long for restoration. We long for all things to be made new. We long for the destruction of death. But in that meantime, God, would you grant us hope? Would you, the God of hope, fill us with joy and peace that by your spirit we may abound and overflow in hope? every day of our lives. How we love you, how we praise you, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, the Son of Man, amen. Amen. I want to um, tell you that tomorrow night is our women's Christmas party. It's gonna be jam-packed in here. We're gonna have tables in here, so I hope you will help us move the chairs as you leave. Just grab one and move it to the wall as fast as you can. If you can't, it's okay, but if you have uh, a quick moment, pick up a chair or two or five or 10 and help us get them to the sides of the room. God bless you. We will see most of you tomorrow night.